Coming up on episode 61 of the Upful Life Podcast. You see those two worlds and how much they need each other. The activist culture needs the dance party so bad. Yeah. And, the, and the kind of bliss-seeking, you know, live-your-best-life culture needs these conversations around impact and social justice. And they often both just miss the, the boat a little bit, yeah. you know. And we were straddling those worlds. We're still straddling those worlds. And, and as we grow older and as we're in a 15-year career now, you know, maybe our, our also some of our storytelling has softened. And, and right now, I think in an era where there is so much divisiveness, I think that we have found ourselves in a vulnerable place, trying to figure out, well, what, what do we want to call people towards? And, and, and how much are people being so bludgeoned right now yeah. that actually the most important thing is catharsis? I'm a bozo. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I thought you had. You recognize me. I love that. Many people like her. Indeedy, welcome to the Upful Life Podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz, and this is episode number 61, coming at you live and direct from the Vibe Junkie Studio in Oakland, California. Back on the West Coast, Blessed Coast, baby, and I got a big one for you. So grateful you are tuning in. Episode 61 of the Upful Life Podcast is proudly brought to you by The Murtails. Elixirs as Mixers. The Murtails. Check it out, themurtails.com, and use the promo code FINTASTIC, F I N T A S T I C, for a 10% discount. Now, you might ask yourself, what is a Murtail? Murtails are elixirs produced in small batches with transparent practices and organic components telling a story from seed to vessel. 
This line of elixirs both champions the cocktail culture, providing a familiar and healthy alternative to pair with spirits, while also serving sober, curious folks who crave an alcohol-free drink with the craft and care of mixology. The Myrtales community can expect clean and healthy organic formulas that can be enjoyed daily with easeful preparation. Now, the Gnome Collective is a national band of herbalists, healers, artists, and educators who have come together to create a socially responsible movement in our current consumer culture. The Myrtales is the brainchild of the Gnome Collective, a beverage line they curated to invite conscious consumption and storytelling into social settings from the culture to cup. The Myrtales are handcrafted elixirs that offer results rooted in traditional folk medicine, yet innovated with a Western woman's touch. And they're designed to enliven your sensory experience with an herbaceous twist on your favorite cocktails with familiar flavors. Furthermore, without the harsh side effects one can find with mass-produced ingredients, overly processed sweeteners, and synthetic preservatives, modified genetics, toxic pesticides, and hands-free machinery. A portion of their potions support offerings to the ocean, contribute to ecological education and advocacy for urban permaculture projects with a give-back program. The Myrtales and the Gnome Collective believe that self-care is health care. Go to themyrtales.com. Again, use Fintastic promo code 10% off. Shout out Jilly. Shout out the Gnome Co. You're hearing come from. From Nevada City's own Roots Dub Reggae Syndicate Zion Collective with the ethereal Simrate on vocals. Come from. Album's called Become. Get familiar. And we're back, episode number 61 of the Upful Life podcast. And the Upful update this go-around is going to be pretty brief. Because frankly, since we last spoke, I spent the majority of the month back east with my moms. Doing fam stuff, hanging out with Ermsey, riding some waves, got myself a little injured. Uh, Went to Brooklyn Comes Alive which was fantastic, and headed back out here. I did catch the Hardly Strictly Bluegrass Fest for a day, went to Trey Anastasio Band at the Greek Theater, but I haven't really put out a ton of content. I put a a lot of energy and intention, creativity and focus into my reporting on the Park City Song Summit, which I spoke a little bit about last month, so I encourage you to check that out. Looking back on the Park City Song Summit, the inaugural year, shouts to Ben Anderson and Maria and Allison and Backline and my man Greg from Pop Matters and everybody who made that come together so nicely. Check out my piece on the experience. A big part of the reason I was so 
Over the Moon is because of the interview that you're about to hear, but it was far more than just that, and I encourage you to check out my reporting, liveforlivemusic.com, or like everything I do, upfullife.com, U-P-F-U-L-L-I-F-E, upfullife.com. I appreciate everybody who slides through the website, who listens to this podcast. Give thanks. And please, if you have not already, smash that subscribe button. Y'all know what to do. Tell a friend. And if you have the time or are so inclined, please rate and or review the Up Full Life podcast on your podcast platform of choice, preferably Apple Podcasts, iTunes, because that does a whole lot to remix those algorithms. Bring it back one time and send new listeners to the Up for Life podcast. And just trying to hit some new ears, y'all. Just trying to, you know, turn some new folks on to what we're putting down. Because, you know, I know y'all are picking up what I'm putting down. But we're trying to spread the Up for Life gospel. And if you have any thoughts or opinions, feedback, constructive criticism, or just anything you want to share with me relative to this pod, or anything at all Up for Life adjacent, you can hit me up direct, b.gets at upfullife.com. Send me an email. I love to hear from the people. Big up yourself. Give thanks. This is a monumental podcast and just moment in my career and my life. And I'm going to fix it to tell you all why in just a moment. But first, we had to lay down a little outcast liberation and do a little business on the front end of the pod. So, yeah. Subscribe, rate, review, email. You can even donate on UpfulLife.com if that's what you're feeling. But you know this podcast is free of charge and I'm happy to put it down for y'all. Episode 61, Upful Life Podcast. I'm your host, B. Gets Liberation. Dungeon Fam represent Outcast. Y'all know what it is. in the house, all the folks that are protecting the wild food and the wild medicine and the wild plants all around the world. Yes, indeedy. 
This is fucking happening. I'm going to do my best to get through this intro because I've tried it a few times and I get choked up and led astray because this is so close to my heart and emotional and I've tried to carry it like a professional and comport myself as a journalist, but I am so closely connected to this music and this artist and this message that uh, I've had a hard time just introducing her, but it is indeed my privilege and honor to welcome to episode 61 of the Upful Life podcast, Miss Leah Song of Rising Appalachia. And if you know me, and you know how I get down, then you know what this means. And uh, basically, I was in Park City for the Song Summit, which I mentioned earlier in the episode, and last month, and this situation presented itself. It was a long time in the making. But before I get to that, for those less less initiated, I'm going to read a hybrid of two band bios. Uh for both for Rising Appalachia. A little birdie told me there might be a new bio in the works, but I'm going to work with what I got. Rising Appalachia is an American musical group led by multi-instrumentalist sisters Leah Song and Chloe Smith. The group brings to the world new sounds, stories, and songs collected across oceans and originally sculpted to embody our human journey, our global community, and the treasures and troves of soul harmony. Listen to their beautiful sound for poetic harmonies, soul singing, spoken word, banjos, fiddles, organic bass and hip-hop grooves. They are community building through sound. With an array of incredible collaborators, they are often joined by everything from jazz trumpet to beatboxing, Afro-Cuban percussion to Appalachian fiddlers, poets, burlesque, circus art. Their style redefines performance using sound as a tool to spark a cultural revolution and birth a new movement of unity and healing. Although Leah and Chloe Smith consider their voices their primary instrument, Leah also plays banjo and badron drum, while Chloe plays guitar, fiddle, and banjo. They're joined by longtime members and super homies, David Brown, who plays stand-up bass and baritone guitar, and the great Biko Cassini, a world percussionist, and Nagoni. And then they've got a new member, Newish, the Irish fiddle wizard, Duncan Wickle, also on the cello, and a part-time member, Aruna Diara, on the talking drum and Nagoni. So that is the lineup and the evolution of the Rising Up project. Um, there's so much more to it. There's the activism, there's the messaging, there's the tradition, and we get into all that. Um, so I'm not going to do my super long intro that I normally do, uh, only because I imagine there'll be some listeners that aren't regular listeners to the podcast, and I don't want to lose them with my self-involved stories, but I do want to take a moment and just dedicate this episode to the amazing, inspiring, empowering women in my life, Um, specifically my best friend Maria, who introduced me to the music of Rising Appalachia, and who's shepherded me through the darkness and into the light time and time again. My dear friend Jill, who I also shared Rising Appalachia music with many times, many nights, many dances. And my mom, who I've shared the same many Rising Appalachia shows, dances, music has brought us closer together, helped maybe her understand me in some kind of way a little more. And of course, my 
Beautiful Bride did be Alicia because and this music plays in our house often and it is a soundtrack to our life, relationship, and also a, a better tomorrow, a world that we want to live in, that we want to work to live in and be a part of, and community and village and all that good stuff. So with that, I'm going to try to just wrap it up here and say, uh, please, Buckle up. This is a beautiful, intentional, it's not an interview, it's a conversation. It's a discipline in musicology and cultural anthropology for me. I'm very proud of what you're about to hear. So give thanks for Rising Appalachia. Give thanks for anyone here who's tuning in to the Park City Song Summit for manifesting this, specifically to Maria and Allison of IVPR who connected whatever dots were needed to get me there to make this come from a decade-long dream to this, what you're about to hear on episode 61 of the Upful Life podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz, Miss Leah Song of Rising Appalachia. Yes, indeedy. Well, this is a long time in the making. Um, it's a distinct honor and privilege at this moment to be sitting here with Leah Song from Rising Appalachia. Uh, many of my listeners and people who have been following my work are well acquainted with my uh, super fandom for all things <laughs> Rising App. And uh, so it is certainly an, an honor to sit here with you and a privilege because your music has meant so much, not just to me, but my better half, our friend circle, the community at large, and as I've witnessed, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of people around the country and even around the world. So for you to carve out a few minutes to sit with me and talk about your career, your inspiration, your muse, your sister, your band, your yeah. vision is like really one of the high points of, of my doing this. So thank yeah. you. Awesome. Welcome to the Up for Life podcast, Miss Leah Song. Thanks for having me and us. I think we picked the right spot to do it. So we've carved out well. Those of you that are listening can't see us, but we're in a good wildflower field somewhere in the outskirts of the Park City Song Summit. Indeed. And yeah, let's start there. Because we're here at the Song Summit. I've never been to Park City, Utah. I was really just touched that the festival brought me out here. Naturally, seeing that y'all were going to be here was a big part of getting me on that flight among so many other amazing artists. We haven't even really hit the music yet, and it's already been an amazing experience. Mavis Staples this afternoon, Warren Haynes, y'all did a lovely workshop, which we're going to talk about a lot of the stuff you already talked about because yeah. it was so good. But I'm curious, how does Rising Appalachia end up at Park City Song Summit? What's your connection to the event or the people here? And uh, you know, you, how did you get on the radar? Yeah, I don't know, actually. I mean, that is one of the things we talked about today is that so much of our work has been 
around following invitations. And, and so we don't necessarily push or steer or, or create a really strict blueprint for our touring life or for where we'll play. We, we spend a lot of time responding to invitations and, and that brings us to so many different wild, strange, quirky, interesting corners of the world. Um, Park City Song Summit, which is where we are now, was really exciting to us for, for two reasons. One, they have a big focus on the, on the folk music world, which, you know, nobody has really ever known what to do with the, the genre of Rising Appalachia. It's, it's been an interesting conversation since we've been playing music, like what genre it is, but we very much consider ourselves folk musicians in the truest form from the very, very beginning, you know, song collectors, students of traditional music, and, and then performers and, and bridge crossers of all kinds of different styles of music. So this, I think, this gathering is really summoning a lot of the old greats in the folk traditions and, and the, the conversations today were so much around songwriting and the muses of the South, you know, and what it feels like to be a Southerner and find your footing and, and both the beauty and the struggle of the South. And it just feels like we are amongst legends in, in this field of, of creative work. And it's only, like you said, day one. Right. We haven't even gotten to the music yet, but but that was also some something we were interested in was was being part of the panels and being in conversations with other working musicians and figuring out how everybody is figuring this out. Awesome, yeah, I I love the sort of big umbrella that is Park City Song Summit, and really like the folk today is is really uh, the long way tethered from the sort of traditional, really rigid a bunch of other artists that kind of like stretch the limit for what maybe it would be considered folk yeah but it's really the as ben anderson says the power and myth of song and i think that's a huge part of what makes him rising up makes rising appalachia so you know popular and loved and celebrated is you both revere and celebrate the traditions of song you play a lot of like classic traditionals from, from gospel and and folk and americana and you write contemporary music as well, and that blend is right at home at an event like this. Yeah. And I think we saw why with the, just the panels today. It was yeah. a great flow. Um, yeah, you it's, mentioned it's cool. the South. Uh, it's peculiar, right? We're in Utah. Yeah. And it's very South focused. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And of course, yeah. Dirty, filthy South. I mean, you've been made no uh, bones about your love and anger and righteous indignation. So um, what was the upbringing like for you and your sister in yeah. the South? 
as musicians and just as you know kids of like uh, progressive parents in a region that is decidedly the opposite yeah yeah we had the strangest um and, and also most wonderful upbringing and a lot of uh you know a, a lot of people don't have that behind them and so i think we're incredibly indebted to our parents who raised us with this really strange combination of a of love of place and love of home and also uh, a deep loyalty to creative arts our our father is a folk sculptor uh, and he went to he actually went to uc berkeley berkeley in 68 i believe to get his masters in sculpture so he was a big part of also the huge activist movement of the 60s as an artist as his own sort of backseat version of a, of a skeptic of systems i think um and our mom is a is a Georgia-based Appalachian folk fiddler, Delta flight attendant for many, many years. We grew up in Atlanta, um, and we had, you know, the, this really interesting kind of identity crisis of of, of our southernness, um, like I think most of us do that are southern. It's it's so rich in tradition, and and also you're just you're also just. The region is saturated in thunderstorms and and fireflies, you know, and 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 blues music and barbecue and you name it. I mean, it is thick in culture, and it is also damaged and and it's a hard place. It's a poor place. It's um, it can be kind of an isolated and insular place, especially in the Southern Appalachians, just by geography. People get tucked into hollers and and traditions stay very intact but also there's a there's a, a stagnancy and a slowness that can be really frustrating and and can feel nearly backwards and it's this and it's a conflict you know no one actually I don't think any of us know exactly how to situate ourselves in the center of that all of the people I know that are indigenous to the south and in, in, in at least their own upbringing and you know, we grew up in the in the urban public school system of Atlanta, Georgia, so we were totally children of the hip-hop movement. I mean, Outkast and Goody Mob came and performed at our middle school and high school. I saw some of the greatest DJs and hip-hop artists in, in that were performing at Georgia Tech and Georgia State, Grady High School. My, my entire upbringing and my peer culture was, you know, it was, it was the contemporary storytelling music of the South, of our crew. You know, it was, we were riveted watching Outkast come from Atlanta into fame, you know, and, and it was five people removed from our, our own crew. And, and so we had this deep love of the urban storytelling, which I love to this day tremendously and believe that it is also a folk music and a, and a storytelling music and a front porch music, you know, and those genres are are actually very pointless because all they do is sort of fraction all of us. But I mean, hip hop is is a, one of our greatest contemporary folk traditions. But the bottom line is, you steal my sister.
then we also grew up with a with an incredible record player and collection in our house of all the old blues and jazz. And then our, our mother got obsessed. Our mother's a musician. She was a jazz pianist, and then she played hammer dulcimer for a while. And then when we were both little girls, she decided, she's born in, in Virginia and, and uh, raised us in Georgia, that she wanted to understand the traditions of the region. And she kind of became this sort of back porch musicologist. And, and it became her her entire focus, you know, outside of, of raising us. And it wasn't her job ever, but she said, I'm, I'm going to learn these traditions. And so every weekend, we would go to Alabama, North Carolina, West Virginia, you know, Eastern Kentucky, Tennessee, you name it. And she would find these tiny traditional fiddle camps that nobody has ever heard of you know we went to this fiddle camp called clifftop which is probably the most famous one now and when we went it was about 200 people and a couple years ago i went back and it's about 3,000 now so she was kind of in the forefront of bringing a lot of this old-time appalachian music back into the fabric of our of our cultural inheritance and as little girls, we didn't understand any of this. We, we didn't care, really. We just grew up in the fabrics of also this traditional fiddle music. And, and she was learning while we were growing up. So we were watching her learn about her, these traditions and, and learn, oh, it's a Mississippi-style fiddle bowing. Oh, no, this is the Tennessee-style fiddle bowing. And we're going to go to this gathering that's about 12 people and sit on this old man's porch and record the last pieces of the stories that he knows because he's, you know, he's on his last leg. And, and that was her, her, still, she still plays eight hours a day. She can play circles around us mm -hmm. completely. She never performs. And we'd like to invite our mother to join us on this. This is Mama Appalachia. And, uh, She's a big reason why this whole thing started. She's got involved in traditional folk music and jazz piano and Appalachian fiddle tunes when we were very little. And, uh, and so we've been raised in her fine sonic company and it's a treat to bring her up here. And we're gonna get her to lean in the mic. This is an old time song called Fall On My Knees.
But we had these two worlds swirling around us for our entire upbringing. Our family still lives in the same house we were born and raised in, in a fantastically quirky little neighborhood in downtown Atlanta. You know, and so we had contra dancing and break dancing and fiddle tunes and outcast, all <laughs> like sort of equally at the table yeah. of our of of our growing up. You know, and 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 it was wonderful to be really honest. You know, at some point it became perhaps a little bit dissonant. We didn't quite understand what to do with all of this, but but m- most of the time it was just wonderful to have all of these different fabrics of of southern identity kind of interwoven and and to be in a in a home where both of our folks were were also kind of committed to learning about place and learning about tradition and we never planned to start a band um we left the house both of us we're not twins but we often speak of our memory like we right you know I, I left for many years and then Chloe followed me and and um, we did some traveling and then I think as we got into the wider world we, we we felt like whoa we we came from so much creative tradition we have to find a way to hold on to it and that's really the truest origin story of Rising Appalachia it, it was out of uh, our hunger to try and figure out some way to, to, to keep a hold of all of these sounds and all of the stories and all of the, of the traditions that were swirling around in our, in our psyche, really. That, that's fascinating. It's, yeah, so much to unpack there. Uh, so, so much. Yeah. We're spending our whole lives trying to unpack it all. Yeah, but I mean, no, for real. I mean, like, seldom do you get like such a, a depth in the, the first answer of a of conversation. So thank you, first of all. And yeah, I really love the dichotomy of like the urban, you know, organized noise, goody mob, outcast, like yeah. the, the, the seeds for what really took over hip hop music yeah. for the next two decades. Totally. Atlanta, that sound, the look, the ethos. And then this, you know, anachronism of, of like old timey porch folk, you know, the oral tradition, some of the songs aren't even recorded on records. Many of them, yep. Passed down, right? So they are these two completely different uh, versions of, of, you know, organic music, you know, not corporate, not like labels, no selling you anything, just, just the, and like those influences became like this battery in your back. And then I, I just, you know, you can hear it. You hear the hip hop you hear, I mean, you kick rhymes, the music always has a pocket, I mean, Biko is making that kick drum sound with his hands, so there is hip-hop inherent in Rising Appalachia, yet it's clearly music of Appalachia. Say yes or say no, cause I really need somebody, oh, tell me you're so-
banjos and stand-up bass and acoustic guitar and fiddle and right. harmonies. And, and the tradition, yeah. unicorn. Yeah, it's so a unicorn. Like, when I first encountered <laughs> you, and shout out to my best friend Maria, who insisted at Symbiosis 2013 that we come over to this yeah. to see you. We saw you twice that weekend. We saw a Soul Vision set and a proper Rising Up set, and I was like, I got religion. And then, yeah. You know, really just a huge fan ever since. So, like, learning about the musicology and the sort of, like, cultural anthropology that informs this music that is so dear to us, it's, like, you know, really important. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And then also the notion of you living in a house with your mom playing this music all the time, and it took leaving the nest yep. and going and seeing the rest of the world and, and that, that yearning for for home, for family, for like what defines you, right. ended up being that music that you kind of just were like, oh, there goes mom again. So, yeah. You know? yeah. So that's really a beautiful arc in itself. Yeah. Just, you know, so. And I think that's so, so typical. It's like the hero's journey or whatever. You have to go far, far away from home. And there's a lot of different notions to that. Some people go far from home and never turn back. Right. And I, I, I don't um, challenge or even question that and then some people go far from home to even realize what home is yeah. even to you know to figure that out and yeah it's it's it was a it's been a fascinating journey for us yeah and it's still a journey it's, it's still an adventure still, yeah. I mean, and we'll get to this summer but uh you know it started as an adventure and, it's a, it it know? started as an adventure not a band right and and i love that and, and you articulated that both of you did this afternoon in the uh with jam and I really thought that I knew a lot about Rising Appalachia before this morning. <laughs> and yeah, I, I learned a, a great deal. Yeah. And, um, Long form gets you in crazy places yeah. with our crew. That's what it's all about, though. That's <laughs> what I'm here for. I feel like that's really what I'm on Earth for. Yeah. Um, another thing I'm on Earth for is to celebrate the great city of New Orleans. Oh, and yeah. dozenth year my fiance who had her own relationship she grew up in the south which is a big part of why your music plays in our house the way it does mm. um, she had her own relationship with the city of New Orleans so it's become a family affair a way for my mm -hmm. mom my partner and I to converge and we just enjoy New Orleans in all the ways and I love your New Orleans story because it was such again an adventure and an accident and you went there for one thing and you ended up staying yeah. a whole lot longer um, so I know you've told it a lot, including today, but my listeners, we have a lot of New Orleans folks, a lot of Jazz Fest folks, a lot of people who adore that city. Yeah. So how did it happen? And tell me about uh, your time there, yeah. your peers, your friends, and uh, and then the arc again of coming back and linking with Prez Hall. Yeah, totally. Well, the New Orleans story is such a, it's such a powerful, like kind of wing of our whole rising Appalachia journey, you know, and it wasn't one again that was planned. It's, I do think that we, 
deepened into our, our understanding of being Southerners, and we wanted to really... I think once we really started understanding that we wanted to be carriers of traditional music, New Orleans was a really natural progression, but how it happened was very much an accident. You know, but we were like, okay, Southern identity, Southern music, Southern culture, Southern tradition, like what does that mean? It's much broader than you know the stereotypes and it felt really important to us to get away from just the cliche notion of southern i, I think that's what's done so much damage to so many of us is it's, it's a much broader place than 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 the than the stereotypes you know and so new orleans was um we were part of an organization called alternate roots shout out to alternate roots they're one of the best southern arts and activism organizations i've ever had any affiliation with uh, we were part of their work for many, many, many years, and we became collaborators with, with jazz musicians and theater productions, and everything was art for activism, art for justice, art that was broader than just your own story. It was art in service. And so we had befriended this incredible community of Southern working artists, um, and we were very close with many of them when Katrina hit. And we were brought down to New Orleans in part of an ensemble that was working to bring, I think, a sense of respite in the, in the very early stages post-Katrina when, when it was incredibly desolate and in, incredibly, incredibly hard time down there. And so many people were bringing food and housing, uh, but, but people were starving for catharsis and New Orleans folks are catharsis people you know I mean I know nowhere on earth with the soul of New Orleans and nowhere on earth that understands that you need to dance in the streets you need to sing you need to weep you need to you need to be amongst your people in order to actually emote So we were brought down there for on, on a grant, and it was the first time my sister had been down, and probably the second time I had been down. And we did um, a series of performances with a small group of artists um, at a university on the outskirts of the city that had been really, really affected, and, and everyone was living in FEMA trailers. And, and it was in, in impactful and, and devastating. And, you know, we, we, we realized that we just needed and wanted to be in service to the rebuild of of that city and and in service in a way where also for the first time in probably our adult lives we were being asked to bring music in as part of healing and I think before then we had thought about oh there's activism and it's very linear and you need a you need to be on the front lines and then there's music and it's and it's just frivolous you know and and this was the first 
step among many, many steps where we started understanding the impact of art also in justice and art in, in healing and art in, in res restoration. And so we, we stayed for seven years. I mean, pretty much from that week that we were down there on a grant, we basically didn't leave. Uh, we moved into a variety of different homes. We worked with a bunch of, of organizations on the ground doing restoration, education. We studied, and that's a really big part of it. We didn't come just offering some sort of respite. We also came wholly in praise of the culture of New Orleans and in awe of it, you know, and, be, and, and really became students and, and, and very loyal to the way New Orleanians understand art and understand music. And so we became students of, of the jazz and the Cajun and the Zydeco traditions and the dance traditions. And we just said, you know, we are, we are here. We're here to be part of this world and, and, and to uplift this world. And we owe so much of our understanding of the power of music to, to the incredible depth of New Orleans. So. Dip me in chocolate sauce and then lick off all my toes. Paint me in marmalade, your mama ain't got to know. Stay here in bed with me till way past afternoon. And drape me in jasmine vines in this crescent city swoon. I got the flavor, baby, you just give me the time Ain't no misbehaving, I got your best interest in mind I don't think we ever really meant to leave, but life has kind of its own railroad tracks and we just kind of following it all over the place. But New Orleans, it, it, I think, is one of the primary pillars of what built Rising Appalachia. I can hear that in the music too, and of course, uh, you know, you sing about it, you, the, the rhythms and the references and the swagger and so certain, much swagger, you know, <laughs> gator pop, the whole thing, you know. So, uh, I've seen y'all play all over the place, and New Orleans is my favorite. Whether it's the Music Box or what formerly One-Eyed Jacks, or I've seen you at the Sugar Mill. As a matter of fact, before we part company, I'm gonna show you a picture of you and my mom and Biko oh. at like two in the morning at the Sugar Mill. <laughs> nice. She was like, I, can I meet them? I'm like, go for it. And she took a picture <laughs> with you three. But uh, yeah, there's just something about it down there, uh, uh, yeah. whether it's the musicians, the people, the energy, again, the, the struggle, or like, uh, you know, what the Rastas call sufferation. It's just like what comes out of that struggle. Like yeah. the music, the spirituality, the community. It's oppressively yeah. hot too. That too. It's so hot, like you just have to lay back in like a in front of a big fan and all you can do is play a couple chords on something, right. you know? I mean it it also kind of is a cook pot. because yeah. cause culture is, is also a survival food. Yeah, definitely. Especially in places like that, where the, like the pride, the sort of sense of self and belonging, is so rooted in in the city and its identity and its history yeah. and tradition. Yeah. <laughs> 
down there you introduced me to who I love ever since is Aurora and Young. Oh yeah. And, you know we love on Aurora for a sec because I've seen her in a bunch of combos since but it was y'all bringing her out at One Eye Jacks that put her on my radar you know years and years and years ago. Uh, what's your relationship with her? How did you get together with her and sing her praises? Oh uh, I mean I think that was another part of New Orleans and I mean it's like I can feel my chest just like the deep kind of pangs of missing everyone you know it's I think 80% of the city is is our musicians right. and everyone's a working musician everyone ha is on tour and off tour and so you get off tour and usually you go back to the rest of the world and people are like oh yeah yeah whatever you you, you vacation for a living or, you know and everyone in New Orleans is like come on over I got you you just rolling off tour I'm about to leave you take the food from my fridge I'll take the food from your fridge and Aurora was one of many of our nearest and dearest beloveds down there that is an incredible musician in so many of her own rights one of the most powerful female jazz horn players she plays sax and clarinet and she sits in with the press jazz band she's she plays at Mimi she plays in in you know she plays I think she plays like 10 gigs a night sometimes <laughs> I mean we think she's a superhero we're not totally sure how she plays the amount of gigs that she plays and as low-key as possible and that is the, the such the pleasure of being down there nobody's a hot shot everybody is is working at it and right. figuring it out together and oh yeah also incredible accordion player I mean she kind of tops it all and we we have a women's singing group that we started years ago our mom started it. it's called the divine divas it's a hilarious long story but she got a group of women together when we were growing up that would all do old gospel and folk songs and we started the the second version of it in New Orleans so Chloe and I started one and we had probably 10 or 12 badass fantastic 
women singers and performers in their own right and we would get together once every couple of weeks and just sit around and swap songs and sing and belt it out no one was trying to learn each other's parts we would just do it all you know the folk style so pick up call and response grab the chorus if you can and just sing together and she was one of many of our of our lady crew down there so you know it it, it it's like a true musician's village yeah well said yeah, it is a true musician's village, and even Kiel, and it's like everybody's down. You know? Everybody's down, everybody's a right. part of it. They all kind of yeah. know your struggle, too, which is wonderful. Because they're living it, too. Everybody's living it, and to try and explain what touring is to somebody that has never kind of e- right. experienced it, it's, it's, it's nearly impossible to describe both the pros and the cons, because they're... There are high highs and low lows, and it's a bizarre job, and it's really cool to just be woven into the fabric of a, of a musician's village. Yeah, and the way it happened for y'all, just like going there to do righteous work and just kind of bring help and then to be welcomed into the bosom and to busk and be rewarded and to make friends and make music and then, you know, kind of springboard your, what became the project, the career, the, the journey yeah. was kind of like, it, you got pulled all the way back in a catapult, like a slingshot in New yeah. Orleans and then psh, and uh, now you uh, got something coming with Press Hall. You know, I actually uh, ordered I, uh, the pay-per-view. I watched oh, that concert. Cool. I mean, how could I not, right? Cool. So, and you said on the air, you're like, you know, maybe we might put this out. And, just might, and then you said something earlier today, kind of. Yeah, yeah. To it. So this won't come out for a couple of weeks. But tell me what's, what's the, what happened. How did the Press Hall thing go down? And what might we see come Yeah, from it? yeah. Yeah, that's been... Uh, one of the biggest honors in the world was to play at Prez Hall. And um, for those of you that don't know Prez Hall, I mean, it's a it's a small room right in the center of New Orleans, and it sits, seats about 30 people. And I, I, I feel a presence and a spiritual power there that, that far surpasses Red Rocks. Red Rocks is 10,000, Prez Hall fits 30. But you, you know that you're sitting in a place that every jazz legend that has ever lived in this country and many from other parts of the world have sat and played in there. And it's a small room. It was bringing together jazz traditions, you know, before folks were even legally allowed to play with each other. It was bringing the black and the white traditions together and really creating a space where music was the, ma- the balm and the medicine and the offering. And they never mic anything. It's been acoustic. There are three shows a night, 365 days a year. You know, you can go and hear the greatest jazz music you'll ever hear in your life. And they collaborate with different artists, and we've been just incredible fans and loyal listeners to so much of the music that's come through there and, and have wanted to collaborate and, and have become friends with many of the musicians and talked about it for years. And then we finally put it together during the pandemic year, and we said, well, we're what if we do a live stream down there? They're, they're not doing full concerts at the time. We weren't doing full concerts at the time. It was still in that strange interim where no one had figured out how the world was going to come back together. Um, and so we, we rolled in and, and, and had an afternoon uh, to do what became a live stream, which, which some of you may have seen, and, and that's also going to be released uh, as a series of videos that actually are, were recorded in the hall. But then we brought in 
two of the most incredible horn players, Brendan Lewis and Aurora Nealand. Um, Brendan is from full-time touring member of the of the Preservation Jazz Hall Ensemble, and all of a sudden we were a we were a full band with a horn section and we were doing renditions of some of our old songs that that just had this this whole new interpretation going on and it felt it felt like a holy experience and we didn't know what it would feel like there was no audience you right. know it was just us in the wa- in the four walls of this room and it felt holy and we we closed the show and you know and and circled back up afterwards and said yeah that 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 had some of that duende spirit it was in there i like the way you move i like the way you move it's just the little things you do Beautifully bizarre and cryptic city Lie more moments steeped in magic Than almost any place I have ever been See we are laden with spirits And our threads held thickly By the stroke of artistry We are big bellied You never know after you've completed a show Sometimes the, sometimes the passion is in the moment and, and then you listen back and you're like Oh, no, no <laughs> That was not so good. But we listened back and we were like, yeah, that's that's got it. So it's it's getting mixed and mastered right now. And it's going to be, um, we have a, a new single coming out really soon, probably right around when this when this releases. And then that's our next production. We're, we're super excited. It's going to be a full-length album and a vinyl, which I think will be the best way to, to possibly listen to it. And it's just live at Prez Hall. It's just the whole thing pretty much from beginning to end. Wow. Vinyl too. Amazing. Vinyl, right? Yeah, I'm so stoked to hear that. It was a it was a special experience. We were a long way from New Orleans when it happened when we were watching. So you know, do you know what it means to miss New Orleans, you know? And like there it was and again you talk about Brandon, like he's come out with you a number of times when yeah. I see you down there, uh, one eye jacks, etc he just blasts it's this bright jolt of like you know jugular energy like you're in the street sashaying it's amazing i mean it just really fits your music and roots it there so to see y'all play there and him come out and and play like that so for the rest of the world is going to get a dose of that yeah i can't imagine what it's like in there like you're in this hallowed treasured historic hall that's seen every last like you know, the best of the best have come through yeah. and played to 30 people. 30. You know, <laughs> been in there at midnight a few times, and you wouldn't believe this in the audience and on the stage, you know. But you're in there, no one else. Yeah. But, you know, hundreds, thousands, or whatever. Yeah. In the ether, yeah. you know, digitally. And that reminds me of something else. And I don't want to skip over a whole bunch of stuff, but I did want to bring up the latest album and the live stream that kind of planted the seeds because oh, I also yeah. I'm friendly with Josh Blake he gave me a heads up he's like you're going to want to watch this um, and it was when y'all did IMAVL mm-hmm. now after New Orleans you've made your home in Asheville for you know close to a decade now I guess right and it's been some time it, right. in and out in and out in but and it's out. been a long time that we've had so a relationship there you chose to do this live stream concert there uh, in this 
amazing studio yeah. in Nashville, and uh, you told this story on stage in Berkeley about how each of you had had your own pandemic experience away from one another. There had not been, the band had not been together or collaborating or playing or writing or anything, and you descended on Asheville and went in and played music, and uh, shortly thereafter, book studio time, and a record came out of it. Yeah. Like, that is like a, a cliff notes of a cliff notes of a cliff yeah. notes. Yeah. Um, so I want to get, I want to start with the music, and then maybe we can talk about the pandemic stuff, because you talked about that too, some of your personal journey during yeah. the pandemic. But as far as the music goes, how was that different? How was like the concert, the jam, and then the creative like uh, process? Because we went from zero to 100. Yeah. You got together, you played a show, you're in a studio, you got a record. How, mm -hmm. did, how did that happen? Yeah, it's a, it's, it was really cool. <laughs> we were starving to see each other. And we were starving for creativity, you know, I mean, before the pandemic, we were burnt out of touring, and, and, and so there was a minute where it was like a respite. But then I think for so many of us, we were like, whoa, are we ever going to get our lives back, you know? And so we went in there to record, and we, we went in there to record the live stream, just like you said. And we realized at the end of the live stream that we needed to, we just needed each other. We just needed space. And, and we said, well, let's just book no one was booking the studio because we were still in the middle of the, the the deepest time of the pandemic so we said well we can we when can we have it for the next day and the engineer there's a dear friend of ours julian dreyer shout out he's fantastic and um and he said yeah we'll we'll just book it the next day and so we did the live stream it was the first time we had played a concert together in a year maybe over a year and then we just booked the next day zero expectations just purely to, to be around each other more and, and we said let's just hit record and let's do a round robin and let's play music in whatever form we feel like it and we decided we would do um, we would pass it around like a series of improvisations so each band member would start an improvisation and we would build from there no expectations it was going to be a potentially just an overpriced rehearsal <laughs> we didn't care right. we just wanted to we, we needed to create and, and similar to, to Prez Hall, you know, we hit record and we passed this round robin back and forth and people would start a track and then, you know, I would pull lyrics from a part of an old poem in the back of my journal and then, and then Chloe would layer on top of that and we would jam that for a while and then someone else would start, uh, Biko would start a rhythm and then the rhythm would start and then Duncan would add cello and we'd all wait and let that settle in for a bit and then and then jump in and build some of them don't have words at all some of them have five words some of them have full choruses and most of those songs are seven to twelve minutes long yeah. and that that had also been a dream of ours we just wanted to make an experimental lilting sort of soundtrack and and it felt like that's what we were doing it, it had no there was no plan behind it but I think it felt so honest to where we all were emotionally and to where the whole world was emotionally yes. which was that there were no answers there was there was no no one knew any direction you know and we named it the lost mystique of being in the know and David Brown our guitarist came up with that title years earlier it's just in an interesting conversation about kind of the digital age and and how 
much mystique was becoming lost. But then all of a sudden, that title and, and, and the personality of the music all just made so much sense to where we were at culturally yeah. all over the world. Like, we had no idea where we were going, and it felt really important to make music like that, that, that also had no idea where it was going, you know? And we didn't make it to produce an album, um, but we liked it enough, and we felt like it was weird and, and appropriately um, dissonant that we decided it was an album and it was our body of work for the, for the pandemic years. And, it, and it, I think it's, I mean, we can't really have favorites, but I think it's, it's really one that hasn't been as popular in, in our fan base because I don't think it's got the catchy lyrics and the sing-along kind of components that a lot of our music is known for, but it feels like such a true creative response. And that, I think, uh, gave us a lot of fuel when, when our tanks were really low. I'm on the other side of that. I love the record, like not nice. to say more than the other records, but as much. And I probably listen to it currently the most. Yeah, me it too. <laughs> represents, uh, it's part of the soundtrack to the dark times. Yeah. Um, it when you dropped it, you know we weren't out of the woods yet. We might not even still be. But, yeah, real. Um, to the humble sort of raw people in a room. You can, even without knowing the story, you can hear that's that's it's not like produced and like super yeah. slick, um, and and just calling on people to become catalysts, to become alchemists, like in a moment where everyone was so confused, so frustrated, disconnected. It was an invitation. It was very like I hate to use the word medicinal, but it <laughs> felt like that. You know, there, and there are a few records that occupy that space for me and my partner and our friends and fam during that time period you know gone gone beyond 2030s another one you know mm. and, and yours and i i was gonna save some song stuff till the end but while we're on it i'm gonna get right to it um maybe my favorite song ever would be silver oh cool and nice choice so, i mean i'm gonna get choked up so i'm gonna try to be <laughs> it it just hits in a way that feels personal and like raw and and both like broken and healed and all these things that I think everyone carries mm. like the things they carry um, it leveled me 
and still does. So, like, you know, a song might fuck you up for a bit, and then you heard it a bunch of times, and you're cool. That's just not <laughs> one of those. Yeah. And uh, I haven't heard it live since I, you know, I've seen, I guess, just the one show on Berkeley since, and you didn't play it that night. And probably best, because I don't know I would have kept it together. <laughs> but um, as much as you're willing to share, um, what's behind that song? And, like, you don't have to say what it's about or whatever, but were you aware um, any of y'all in making that song because I know Zipporah feels the same way yeah uh, and y'all and like Zipporah knows what fucking time it is so I'm like <laughs> all right I'm not alone here like yeah like, so I'm just curious anything you want to share about it? yeah I mean uh, that was a, a pure um, improv uh, which most of the album was but to be fair, one, Lost Girl is a traditional tune, and Catalyst, Chloe had already kind of workshopped the verses and chorus, but Silver was just, it was an improv. And, and, and sometimes at the top of the improv, one of us would tell a story. And so Duncan, our, our cellist and violinist, the amazing Duncan Wickle, uh, he started that and he leaned into the mic. We couldn't see each other, but we were all in the same room. We just had screens between each other for sound. And he said, I want you to imagine when that we're we're walking you know towards Walden's pond and that's all he said and then he started the riff the, the cello riff which is beautiful sort of improvised those lyrics and and I was kind of in this journey with him I, I, I could feel us moving towards a body of water and, and this process but then it, it became it really did kind of become this imaginal exploration and I, I would like to think that it was a, a bit kind of going into the psyche because I, I remember as I was as I was singing, also kind of doing what I was singing. I wander down barefoot to the edge of the pond. I, I, I was doing that in my mind, you know, and then le leaning in and looking into this body of water and then became this process of aging, you know, and then and you see yourself, you see your young self. And then, and then you see your, your middle-aged self, and you see your, 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 your traumaed self, and then you see your healed self, and, and then you see your, your hair go all gray and silver. And I could see that happening in this, in this kind of mirror lake that was 
that was part of my process of finding a lyrical way through that song, you know? It was, I was kind of doing those things. And, and it stayed very spacious. And then Duncan and David dropped into a traditional Irish tune, which is some of the most beautiful magic that they co-create, those two. They, they can harvest from a lot of the body of old traditional Celtic tunes, and they, they brought a traditional tune in there, and the song just moved, it lilted about. And, and like so much of the album, we didn't know where we were going. You know, it was, we were being carried. And I think that one definitely was a carrier. Yeah, that's so cool. Like, I never even imagined what that would be like to, to in real time, kind of, like, live through the story and then sing lyrics as you're walking to the water in your mind in real time while recording but also it feels so natural, so organic. And, yeah. And even like the shift into the Irish part we were talking about, it was twofold. A, that's maybe my favorite, like David Brown guitar solo. Yeah, it's the beautiful. The story he tells, I texted him like two paragraphs in the middle of the night once. He probably was like, this guy's crazy. But uh, <laughs> just telling him how that solo made me feel. Awesome. And of course, like in the middle of the pandemic, like the feels, you're feeling everything. That's awesome. side of the coin is the addition of Duncan because he's you know one of the, the newest he's our newest member yeah um, has kind of freed David from some sonic responsibilities so that he's able to kind of pursue more or different stuff mm-hmm. or vice versa mm-hmm. it's really a new dynamic to yeah the band. it is um, yeah for those less familiar um, talk about the roles that um, David and Biko and Duncan play yeah um, Creatively and in general, because I love the fact that um, there was a male-dominated music industry and mm. festival scene, and and this band is is two women leading three men, and there are support roles, but each of them are essential. Yeah. To the elixir. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think part of that album, the lost mystique of being in the know, we also had Aruna Diara in the room, which right. he he toured with us part time and. And sometimes we're lucky enough to have him, but we had all, all four of them in for that album. And I feel like that um, the recording of that gave us all such an interesting sense of um, pride in each other because because it was there was so little communication and there was so little talking, and we made such interesting music, and and we didn't really even try 
it just felt like we leaned into each other. And I, and I think that was part of the joy of making that album. We, we all felt like, wow, we've been doing this together for a long time, you know? And Chloe and I started the project years ago and we started it as a duo. Um, but but we, we never really imagined that there would be a family that surrounded the project the way we have now. We have David and Duncan and Biko, Aruna when he's with us, and our crew, Scarecrow and DeLacy, who are also full-time members. I mean, it's like a really complicated marriage mm-hmm. in the best and probably some of the craziest ways. But, you know, I remember when we first started touring as a four-piece, it was me and Chloe and David and Biko, and we, and somebody said, oh, you know, each one of you holds a different one of the elements, and you have this really interesting balance. You know, and it's felt that way also having Duncan and Aruna and even when we're able to bring Aurora in, you know, it's felt like we have always wanted to make music that's really spacious and that holds room for people to lean in or lean back as they need, both as listeners and, and on stage. And I think, you know, David... David's musicality has leaned into a lot of the Appalachian, also Celtic, and and also uh, one piece that a lot of people don't know, he he cut his teeth doing old school vinyl DJing, you know, he was a a record scratcher back in the 90s, and so he also had this weird Appalachian and and urban hip-hop love, which is uncannily odd for Chloe and I to have anyone else that, that... plays contradance music and knows like the best legendary 90s hip-hop tracks (laughs) you know and then Biko came in with this wonderful understanding of world music he grew up on the farm in Tennessee so he had this this different sort of urban rural he 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 was raised on on a one of America's oldest communes and then moved to Brooklyn and started playing in all of these live club shows being the the live drummer with a lot of electronic DJs and had his whole explore exploration of that Duncan grew up in in Asheville North Carolina and was a student at a fiddle camp that Chloe and I grew up going to also called the Swananoa Gathering where he was a, a really a prodigy of the traditions that were being taught although he probably wouldn't want me to say that Duncan mm-hmm. if you're listening you know it's true um, and and he was a he grew up going to this one and a gathering and Chloe and I came in kind of as ruffians and we were volunteers and we were like the outsider you know weird teenagers that were trying to figure out all this traditional folk music that was being heralded there and so we we like truly have deep familial roots that didn't really come together until we started playing music together and and has built really really slowly and organically but feels like there's a bedrock of of shared experiences that I just can't imagine touring without that I, I can't imagine the feeling of touring without a crew that really feels like your people you know and and I think sometimes it's probably hard for for the boys too like right. You know, they, they have to sort of see themselves heralding a project that is often talked about as the sisters right. and the girls. And I, I do really, it myself. <laughs> yeah. I do. And, but I mean, I also really am so honored to have their presence and their musicality and f- 
for for us to make space to find ways for each of their music to shine and for their musicality to help support the songs that we write, you know? And I think at its highest form, it's really, really powerful. Indeed, it feels that way on the other side of the equation in the audience, that's for sure. And I don't think, you know, there's no replacing Biko, there's no replacing David. Like yeah. If they could make the gig if you needed a player, like... Yeah. We've, they're one of a kind. And we've pretty much never done that. Yeah. We've talked about, you know, okay, we're going to have to have some subs somewhere in our career. Yeah, I mean, eventually you would think, but I'm, I'm just saying never a lot have. of bands, they can grab a guy. Right. Grab a girl. Right. You know, and this is not that situation. Right. So speaks to the uniqueness of their contributions. Yeah. Et cetera. take up too much of Leah's time. She's been quite generous, but <laughs> what's the future hold for Rising Appalachia? What can you fill us in on? What we can look forward to, hold our breath for, etc. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, I mean, I think that's been the really interesting positive part of, the, of these years is that we've been able to produce a lot of material. So we, we just released um, a James Blake cover called Forest Fire, which we started this whole ensemble where we wanted to do an entire run of, of pop music covers, but we, we called it folk pop. So we've got a couple of those coming out. We're releasing Thank You Very Much September 16th, which might be after this is out, um, but it's coming and that's a, a song that I wrote years and years and years and years and years ago that never really had a life uh, recorded and we finally put it through the Rising Appalachia filter. So that one feels really sweet. Um, we have the Prez Hall full-length album, which is probably the next thing that'll come out. And then we started a new project. It was totally by accident. Um, but we started uh, basically a girl band. <laughs> and I never thought I'd start a girl band, but we had a, a writing crew. Five women got together for the entire pandemic and wrote a song a week. Sometimes the prompt was write the worst song you could ever write. Sometimes the prompt was write a Nordic, you know, murder ballad it was a different prompt every time uh but it was myself chloe tina malia elenario and maria stark um and we said we were never going to record but we realized that some of it was was so juicy that we we decided to record it so we recorded an album and we named the project starling arrow we didn't even want to have a band name you know but but we wanted to put this work out and then we decided the best way to put put it out was naming the project so it's a it's an ensemble of five crazy boss babes uh and there's a whole full-length album of what we kind of call apocalyptic lullabies coming out uh the full length is going to come out in december so keep your eyes out for that it's it's really special um it's just really special music for us awesome yeah we got a taste of it 
uh, in Berkeley, and it was very celestial, and yeah, the harmony is beautiful. So we'll look forward to it, and I'll put a link in the show notes yeah. so people can click on Starling Arrow and find out all of the things. Killer. But, amazing lineup. Oh, my wild sweet, here for you as you found me. Go, my wild sweet, here for you as me. Obviously, you know, it's a big part of what Rising Up is about. It's in the music. It, you know, you lead by example. Mm. I can take them all from the prison industrial complex, mm. slow music movement. You know, like, there have been a lot of uh, situations where you've led by example, where you've done what's not the norm in the mm. name of the environment, righteousness. Um, where does that come from? I know you talk about your dad was in Berkeley and the mm. height of of the you know the hippie 60s and and of course like y'all in the dirty filthy south well, when does the threat of activism get involved and and yeah anything you want to share yeah. about i think we started in activism and music came later okay and and that's an interesting part of it because but both chloe and i were involved in our own realms of justice as as radical you know righteous teenagers and we um we had a lot we wanted to say and we had a lot we were figuring out and I think we started we started as activists we were at the forefront of the School of America's protest in Columbus, Georgia which is tied to a lot of paramilitary training around the world Chloe was doing a lot of work in um, frontline around the the redwoods and and forest protection out uh, on the west coast I moved to southern Mexico as an 18 year old bushy tailed you know fascinated student of the world to learn and study alongside the Zapatista movement, which was a, yeah. a huge and powerful indigenous-led movement in southern Mexico. And I just went as a student of, of that movement. And, and you know, I would say actually that, that really was the beginning as, as travelers and as activists. So often the question is, where are you from? And the stereotype is, oh, if you're American, you are from soap operas, McDonald's, and, you know, decent to mediocre Hollywood flicks. And there's this notion that America is just broken capitalism. And, and I think that's when music kind of started sprouting very much for me, you know, is that I, I had left home and I wanted to understand how to explain to people where I was from without uh, needing to write a dissertation, you know, without, or without being able to speak the language. And so slowly I started gathering little pieces of traditional music and mostly it's traditional. I wasn't writing songs at that time. I, was, I wanted to take a little piece of Appalachian music that was the, the sounds of my childhood you know, and, and have that with me. And I started traveling with a banjo. I started learning the banjo in Mexico. That's where I started learning. I had heard it for my entire life, but I didn't start learning it until I w went away. 
And, and then it became like a, a, a fabric of our songwriting. How do we write songs that tell stories that feel palpable, that feel pressing? Chloe wrote Resilient, beginning to end, on an airplane trip, presented it, bam, like, all right, here is wow. the magnum opus of her entire writing. Or maybe there will be more, but just she was charged by, by her work and our work around Standing Rock and around work with Winona LaDuke and indigenous rights and just finding a place for music to, to call and to question. that that's been a, a huge muse for us forever has been to try and make music that really matters and I will also say really transparently that that has changed also and that angst and that frustration that comes from the 20s that comes from frontline justice work has worn itself into a different place both because I think that level of frontline work is not sustainable um, and it's really important also to make sure that activists have self-care because the burnout rate is really high and it's, it's so interesting this is so this is such a tangent but I think it's an important one you know you see the activist culture doesn't have a lot of self-care and then you often see the festival culture doesn't have a lot of activism or the the, the sort of bliss seekers maybe it's yeah. not fair to call that the festival culture but no, I think it you know is. at least the sizable you, you see those two worlds and how much they need each other. The activist culture needs the dance party so bad. Yeah. And, the, and the kind of bliss-seeking, you know, live-your-best-life culture needs these conversations around impact and social justice. And they often both just miss the, the boat a little bit, yeah. you know. And we were straddling those worlds. We're still straddling those worlds. And, and as we grow older and as we're in a 15-year career now... You know, maybe our, our also some of our storytelling has softened. And, and right now, I think in an era where there is so much divisiveness, I think that we have found ourselves in a vulnerable place, trying to figure out, well, what, what do we want to call people towards? And, and, and how much are people being so bludgeoned right now yeah. that actually the most important thing is catharsis?
it's been a a little bit of a disorienting place for us as artists, as songwriters, because you can see that the pulse of of our contemporary culture is so it's so divided and it's and it's so finger pointing and everyone has got a bone to pick with everything and that doesn't feel whole either you know and 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 so now our footing is like it's it's shifting a little bit you know to try and figure out how to make music that is really meaningful right now and and it's it's a it's a new landscape it is and you basically like walked right into the next question that was what i was <laughs> going to follow up with um and finish with and it might be kind of hard um and you know you can take it wherever or not touch it but um naturally divisive time uh, especially in our community whether you want to call it the new age community the festival community spiritual community people i know from burning man or lightning in a bottle or you know ecstatic dance or any number of communities or cultures that kind of exist Mm -hmm. outside of uh, you know like frontline work if you will there's a really big divide and you know you had the good sense to to go far away and get offline and really (laughs) not engage in the bullshit and like you know the rest of us maybe didn't do that and bore witness to a lot of the divisiveness and it cost us yeah. it cost our souls it cost us relationships yeah it cost us sanity sleep yeah. our health so i'm curious now as you are back out on the road and you're playing to audiences that are you know there's a lot of different opinions in the room yeah uh, about serious matters whether we're talking about the me too stuff or women's rights with the abortion reverse wave yeah. and ukraine i mean we could tick off all these things that are people are screaming at each other sure. about and your music has always been a moral compass um, for all of us. Like, you lead by example, you sing about what's important. Um, Have you found a disconnect in getting back out in this sort of like post-pandemic with your fans, with other peers? And if so, um, how are you navigating it? No, it's a great question, you know. Because I am in my personal life. Yeah. You know, I think everyone felt that in their personal life. And I think that there have been some times when people have looked to us to make clear statements, you know, and and it has felt like we are all so unclear right now. And I think the there's there's so much fervor for for people to pick sides. There is a fervor for it. And I I think perhaps we have a little more experience with this as Southerners because we existed before any of this in a, in a culture where you were asked to pick sides and we've always not. We've always said, oh, we are Southern and we are pursuing radical ideology. We are playing the banjo, but we're doing it a little differently. And like, that's always been a little bit of a tension. But, but right now, you know, I think it's important to take a stance when you feel very very strong about something and so I wouldn't challenge somebody for taking a stance in something but I also think that the middle path has been completely discarded and we have just flared up flared up extremes on both sides and for my whole life I've considered myself a radical and I don't 
know that that's the term that I would choose any longer. I, I feel like, wow, people have gone so far into their own ideologies that they have alienated c good people, kind people who maybe have slightly different perspectives. And like you said, the list is so long about what we could be talking about. I mean, it is so, so long. And, and so I think it's a hard place to hold nuance right now. It's a hard place to hold the middle path. You are asked to take strong sides and sometimes strong sides are needed. And I, I will really reiterate that. But I, I think right now, one of the most powerful things that we can do is be critical thinkers and to ask questions and to, 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 to try and find ways to trust each other and to bring each other in and to find paths towards healing and towards justice and towards repair. Plenty of us are needing repair, you know? And, and that's a messy work. That's not a real clean place to maneuver. I will say we were nervous going back on the road and it's been a really, really joyful experience to feel like, you know, most of us are just wanting to be in, in catharsis, no matter where you are on any issue. We are desperate as humans to be in spaces where we can weep together and we can laugh together and we can dance together and we can process. And perhaps we need to process not always in our minds. We need to process in our bodies. We need to shake it out. We need to, yeah. to, to, to sweat and sob. And I think that's what we're holding to is that we're going to try and create that container and you're going to be welcome in the door from all kinds of different walks of life that's what it's all about you know i mean this that's what this is about right this is about repair yeah we're here we're repairing we're not just talking about music and life and we're, we're repairing ourselves after what we've been through yeah everybody's version is different and I just wanted you to know, and I would say the same to the whole band, that your music is a, is a North Star mm -hmm. and a compass and a safe place and a soundtrack to like, like the world I want to live in, the world that we want to work towards. And it's not falling on deaf ears. Yeah. And I just, I'm so grateful, not just for this time with you, but for all that you've given all of us. Um, it's, it's like some of the most important music in mm. my life. And Thanks. I, I love you for it. So thank you Thanks. for the chat and for the tunes. Also, you wrote the very best article that's ever been written about us ever in the history of our all of our careers. So thanks for digging into deep, long form journalism again. It is, it is also not on deaf ears. So. I appreciate that. There's no greater affirmation. So Yay. thank you. And I can't wait to see you play tomorrow night. Yeah. We're definitely going to weep and sweat. <laughs> shake it out. And shake it out. Mississippi calls my name.
trying just like the intro i've given this a couple of shots and either got choked up or went on for 17 minutes so but you know that is because i edited this pod right before i picked up this microphone and i ran out into the backyard and headphones and danced the entire soul visions album in broad daylight on a lovely friday afternoon here the Vibe Junkie Studios in Oakland, California, and it felt fan-freaking-tastic. This is the record that, quote, changed my life, you know? It's Rising Appalachia and the Human Experience, friend of the pod, and basically they took, uh, or David, the Human Experience, took the music of Rising Appalachia and set it to kind of like a deep, dubby dance music some of the sexiest music ever laid down it's also spiritual and beautiful and a brilliant marriage of yesteryear and tomorrow it also landed in my life at a very crucial moment when I had just moved to the west coast and was kind of a lost soul putting one foot in front of the other and this music came to me and It's so sacred. I don't think that maybe Leo Rising Appalachia views it quite the same, only because it's like a side project and they have such a voluminous and incredible catalog of original music that they've made and recorded. But I'm sure they're well aware. I know the human experience is well aware, and I made it a point to talk with him in depth about this record on his episode of this pod. But this music, you put it on at any ecstatic dance, at any festival DJ set, at any hang um, in the sort of burner West Coast diaspora, um, and everybody is vibing. It's it's magical stuff. And uh, maybe down the road we could talk with Leah or Chloe about this record. But it was a lot of it was recorded in New Orleans, especially in uh, the late, great James Oroch's place, his studio. Um, Brilliant uh, author, philosopher, writer, burner, beloved member of this sort of extended Abraxas family. And uh, yeah, it's just so fitting and beautiful that this magic was manifested and created in the lair that he called his. So it just exponentially makes this music that much deeper and more profound. But even if I didn't know that, or if this doesn't mean anything to 99% of you, standing alone, it is fantastic. So I'm going to play uh, Downtown from 
the Soul Visions record for the Vibe Junkie Jam. Well, I'm going to do two. It's only fair. we got to play some proper Rising App, too. And somehow I managed not to play my favorite song, which is Novels of Acquaintance. Absolutely stunning, iridescent number that they often play early in the set and just, just I'm crying like seven minutes into the gig. But it's it's an old song that they released, I think it was on Ley Lines in 2019, or maybe Wider Circles. I should probably know this if I'm doing a podcast about the group. Um, yeah, first song on Wider Circles, 2015. My bad. Um, so, like we always do about this time, the vibe junkie jams. And I'm going to keep the vibe with the Soul Visions and hit you with the Downtown. I highly recommend you check out that record. Um, whether you're a fan of the folkier side of things or the dancier side of things. It is the epitome of a marriage of two disparate worlds of sound art that make the holiest of matrimony. So uh, we'll go downtown and then we'll write novels of acquaintance. I'll give you a live version and uh, that'll do it for episode 61 of the Up For Life podcast. As you can probably tell, I am a proud, proud boy this afternoon. I'm going to go back outside and dance in the headphones a little bit more. I feel really great about this work, about this pod, about where this is headed. And and, and with the looming darkness out the window in every direction that I often lament, um, there's no greater antidote, serum, potion, mystic brew than the music of... Leah Song and Chloe Smith and Rising Appalachia. And yo, Chloe, you're my heart too. You were the first one to talk to me. And honestly, I love you dearly as well. So maybe one day, if you're so inclined, we could do this too. But I'm just in gratitude for the music and the message and the leadership. So with that, I'll say goodbye, job less, and we'll see you next time. Yes, indeedy. I gotta let this pretty little foot ride out for a sec.
Met you all the mountain moons, banjo riffs and fiddle tunes. Sugar River stair creepers, once now, twice now, every weekend. Lean in, my lovely friend, bits of tender meridian. Tip the cup and pour the rubies, while I've said lust and beauty. Yeah. 